Um, and yet, even though there were times when the city was really good, it's fallen on hard times. And after Hezekiah comes uh, uh, Manasseh. And Manasseh is so bad that uh, both Kings and Chronicles attribute the final necessity of the fall of Jerusalem to, the, to him. And, and this is Hezekiah's son. Um, Hezekiah and Josiah, the last two good kings of the, northern, of the southern kingdom, um, were, were, were really good kings. But for all their goodness, for all their leadership, they couldn't turn the nation back. And so um, it was a horrible time. Yes, Fred? Has there ever been a time in their history when the leaders and the people, obviously there were always subsidies, right. when for the most part everything was really going righteously? Go read Kings, First and Second Kings. A kind of rule of thumb in the book of Kings is as the king goes, so goes the nation. So generally speaking, when you have a good king, the people serve the Lord, but they turn away very quickly. So like the days of the judges. Uh, when, when the, as long as the judge is alive, the people serve the Lord, but when the, the judge dies, then they turn away and go back to idolatry. I say again what we said last week, materialism is the fundamental default position of humanity um, and you can have a spiritualistic fun, uh, a materialism because the gods of, of the um, uh, of the polytheists are, are made of the same stuff that we are it's just more exalted uh, the gods are big men and if you look at the uh, the mytho mythologies that you have most available to you Greek and Roman mythology for example you will see that the best of men are, are better than the, than the best of the gods. Uh, mankind tends to be. When, when you get a good man, he's better than the gods are. Uh, so uh, we, we are materialists at heart. This is why I recommended that book, The Bible Among the Myths, to you. Um, the, it really is, I think, a, a, an important book and, and worth reading. Um, Bar uh, Beverly, have you run into that book before? Okay, it would be worth reading for what, what you do. Because um, it's contrasting the polytheistic worldview with a biblical worldview and laying out the basics. What, what can you expect from a, from a polytheistic worldview and what, what then does that mean for the Bible? How are we to... The, the Bible among the myths by John Oswalt, O-S-W-A-L-T. Um, the, uh, the, the issue is that we are so driven by our senses, we cannot imagine a reality beyond them. It's hard for us. Um, it's hard for us, even though we have the Word of God and we spend our time in it, it's hard for us to get beyond the reality of our senses. It's, it's a work of the Spirit in us. Uh, turn just a moment to John 3. I, I want you to see this. I, we've done this before, but I want you to see it again. Uh, in John 3, Jesus makes a basic statement 
And I think it's a statement that we've largely misunderstood. Uh, it's about new birth. It's right at the beginning of the chapter. Yeah, it's we're in that context. He says, um, um, verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, um, one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of, of uh, God. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God? Shortly, he will say, enter the kingdom of God. And for most of my life, I thought seeing the kingdom and entering the kingdom were synonymous. But what if they are not? Uh, what if to see the kingdom is a prior step to entering the kingdom? Hmm? Yeah, turn to Hebrews 11, and we'll see Hebrews' comment, I think, on, on this kind of thing. Um, so Hebrews 11, um, verse uh, um, 24 is where I want to start. Bifocals are not working very well. Let me reverse the order here. Uh, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, and here it is, he endured as what? Seeing him. Seeing him who is? Unseen. How can you see what is unseen? Yes, by faith, but also that's done by new birth. So the point is, in John 3, new birth enables, enables you to see realities that are unseen. Yes? Well, I, I don't think that's the point of seeing the kingdom. He's talking about to live in light of unseen realities and make your decisions on bases that wouldn't make any sense to anybody else. Read through Hebrews 11 sometime and see that the people who are singled out are people who live just that way. They live in light of realities that nobody else think, thinks is significant. Does that make sense? You, 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 you make your decisions on the basis of realities that every other human on the face of the earth thinks are foolish. It's like prayer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So my, favorite, my, my mentor in Memphis was quite a golfer, and he also loved investing in the stock market. He tried to get me into it, had me read a book called A Random Walk Down Wall Street. Scared me to death. I thought... I don't even understand this book. I'm not going to get involved in investing. Uh, they, they cited a, a study in which they took 10 top economists and had them choose um, stocks and so forth. And they had 10 monkeys choose stocks. And the, and the monkeys' cho- stocks did better than the economists' stocks did. And I thought, <clears throat> what am I going to be able to do? <laughs> so... 
Are, yeah, hire ten monkeys, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, the, the, the point I'm getting at is, folks, since he loved both golf and investing, he would get out on the golf course and sometimes you would be there by yourself and you'd have to join a threesome and um, the, uh, in the course of the, of the four-hour round chasing a little white ball around with a stick. Um, some, at some point, people would start talking about uh, stocks and investments and he'd say to them, you know, I, I've got a question. What, what do you have in your portfolio that will still be worth what it is now or more in 500 years? <laughs> and of course, it's right to laugh at that because in 500 years, you don't care. And in 500 years, more importantly, that company won't even be in existence. Yes? So there's, that's what, that was his next point. I got an investment that I can guarantee you will not only be as valuable that day, 500 years from now, than it is today, it will be more valuable. So, uh, if I, and then he would go on and present the gospel to them. Are you with me here? But, but that's reasoning on bases that don't make any sense to investors. Yeah. My, my point is that in Isaiah, uh, when there were people in leadership who were godly, the people tended to be more godly. They tended to live in light of, of, of future. Um, but very soon after the godly leader was gone, the next generation just moved away. My pastor, when I was growing up, reminded us over and over again. He was my pastor for about 10 years. He, he reminded us over and over again um, that we are only one generation from the, from the death of the church. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It took two, but it's, it's getting there. The, my, my, so, so the point for Israel here in, in 1, uh, 20 to, uh, 21 to 23 the point for them is to face up to the fact that their continual rebellion. Uh, I, I know some of you read the Bible um, regularly. As you do, I would encourage you to start with Exodus and just take, take the temperature of Israel generation by generation as you work through Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, uh, Samuel, Kings, Chronicles. Take the temperature. And what happens is there are short periods when people are very observant. They keep the covenant in some measure. They very quickly turn away. And by the time you get to Josiah, the pattern breaks down. As the king goes, goes so goes the nation. By the time you get to Josiah, Jeremiah begins his ministry under Josiah. But God is already predicting the, the, the destruction of the city. It didn't take long for them to change their mind. Aaron's making a, yeah. a golden calf while yeah. his brother's up That's on right. the mountain. So um, the, the issue is that as Isaiah is writing and receiving these messages, um, God is warning Israel. What, is it, what, is, what does he warn them about? Well, look at verse 24. 
verse 24 is, is a, an important transition verse. Therefore, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, declares, um, uh, I will be relieved of my adversaries and revenge myself upon my foes. I, w- the, I will be, what did he say? Relieved. Relieved? Well, he had said, and we saw this toward the end last week, that their sins have become a burden to God. And the God to whom they are a burden is the, the Lord God of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Uh, the word hosts, um, of course, is a reference to, to armies. Um, the word is used specifically that way in the Old Testament several times, sometimes. Um, but the point of it is, God sums up in himself all the powers of heaven and earth. So uh, you can talk about the heavenly hosts, and they are the armies of heaven, and then the, the hosts of Israel, the armies of Israel, yes? So when he is the Lord God of hosts, he is the one who has all power, and yet he is burdened by our sin, and he's going to get relief from that burden. He's wearied. And then he's the mighty one of Israel. (laughs) Um, So how is he going to do it? Well, he does it in a remarkable way, frankly. Look at verses uh, 26 and following. Um, uh, Verse uh, 25 and following. I will also turn my hand against you and will smelt away your dross as with lye and will remove all your alloy. Then... I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. After that, you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. So the way he, the the, the first thing he does in relieving himself of the burden of Israel's sin (laughs) is is to take it away. Uh, I'm I'm going to smelt you. That's, pardon? It's pretty tough. Yeah. The outcome of it is marvelous uh, because he's, uh, Hosea says it somewhat differently. Hosea is an earlier contemporary of Isaiah. He's also 8th century BC. And Hosea 2, look, look at Hosea 2. Um, that's right after Daniel. So if you can't find it, um, Hosea chapter 2. He talks about Israel uh, as being not my people. Uh, this, he's actually, Hosea is a, is a prophet to the northern kingdom. This is, of course, before the fall of the northern kingdom in 722. So he says, verse 4, I will have no compassion on her children because they are children of harlotry, for their mother has played the harlot. This is the northern kingdom. Now Isaiah is speaking to the southern. Uh, their mother has played the harlot. She has conceived them has acted shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax and my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, I will hedge hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so that she cannot find her paths. Sounds kind of hopeless, doesn't it? It's not. Um, 
She will pursue her lovers, but she will not overtake them, and she will seek them, but will not find them. Then she will say, I will go back to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. For she does not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the new wine, and the oil, and lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for bail. Therefore I will take back my grain at harvest, and my new wine in its season. I will take away my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness, and then I will uncover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers. No one will rescue her out of my hand. I will also put an end to all her gaiety, her feasts, her new moons, her Sabbaths. Mm-hmm. And all her festal assemblies. I will, I will destroy her vines and fig trees, of which she said, These are my wages, which my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field will devour them. I will punish her for the days of the bales, when she, when she used to offer sacrifices to them, and adorn herself with her earnings and jewelry, and follow her lovers, so that she forgot me, declares the Lord. That sounds pretty bad, but it's not. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her. Bring her into the wilderness. Why the wilderness? It's where he began the relationship with them. This is where he first wooed her. Then I will give her her vineyards from there and her valley of Achor. Valley of Achor, do you know what that is? What, what is that? Yeah, it's, it's the, well, no, it's not. Valley of Achor is, is where Achan was, uh, was executed with his family. That, the, word, the, the, the word Achor or Achor in Hebrew means valley of troubling. I will take, I will, uh, the valley of troubling will be a door of hope. And she will, she will sing there as in the days of her youth, as in the days when she came up from the land of Egypt. It will come about in that day, declares the Lord, that you will call me Ishi my husband, and you will no longer call me Baali, my master. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth so that they will be mentioned by their names no more. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky, creeping things of the ground, and I will abolish the bow, the sword, from the, and, and war from the land, and will make them lie down in safety. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me now, here you have, and I, I have, in righteousness, is that what you have? Yeah. 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 I, probably I must take this as the bride price. Here, here, here's what he's giving her um, to, uh, to make it possible for her to, to re-enter the marriage. Uh, in that day I will make a covenant. So I read that. Verse 19. I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice. In loving kindness and in compassion. Hold your finger there. Go to chapter 6. Sorry, chapter 4. Chapter 4, God's calling the northern kingdom to a covenant lawsuit, like we talked about last week in chapter 1. Listen to the word of the Lord, O sons of Israel, for the Lord has a case against the inhabitants of the land because there is no faithfulness, no kindness, no knowledge of God in the land. Go back to chapter Uh, 2, verse 19. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in loving kindness and in compassion. 
That's, he's going to give that to them. Got a call from a former student yesterday um, who's just going through some awful times. She was trafficked as a child, and there were people who, men and women, who tried to kill her from time to time, and uh, she's still reaping the benefits of this. She's in her 40s now and struggling with it. She may be in her 50s. Uh, she's, she's really struggling, and she was talking to me about spiritual warfare. And I said, you know, I think we've, we've made, we've put the emphasis in the wrong place in spiritual warfare. The issue of, the only place I know, and there may be other places, I just haven't specifically made a study of this, but the only place that comes to mind when I think about spiritual warfare is, uh, is Ephesians chapter 6. But we don't fight. What do you do? In, well, what do you do in Ephesians chapter 6? You put on the armor and stand. Stand. Why? Because the armor is what God is giving us, not what we are doing for him. Are you with me here? So the breastplate of righteousness is what he has given us. I stand in his righteousness, not in mine. Isaiah's telling Israel what God is saying, correct? Mm. Does, it, does Isaiah know that sometimes God's talking about something that's going to happen 2,000 years later rather than it's going to happen, if you do this, it'll happen immediately? I don't know. I don't know what he knows. So what is God saying? We've we got the advantage yes. of having all of this, yeah. stuff, all of Scripture. Yeah. He's talking about... As it turns out, yeah. The future, right? We're talking about in the millennium, Yeah. Again, I think this is Isaiah's early preaching, and Isaiah 6 is in in the proper chronological place in the book. Um, Most people who study Isaiah don't take that view. So if you don't believe me, it's okay. A lot of folks would agree with you. But if this is right, that chapter 6 is after his early preaching, not his call to be a prophet, but rather a reorientation of his message. I want you to see that he's offering hope here in chapter 1. He will do that again in chapters 2 and 4. But with chapter 5, it looks like all hope is gone. And so chapter 6 becomes the reorienting of his ministry to be now one of, of hardening, not one of calling to repentance, but... Uh, by them, here's the astonishing thing, by the message of salvation, the promise of salvation, God hardens Israel's heart. How wicked is sin? To use the message of hope as a ground for um, more rebellion against God. Are you with me here? So if this is right, then um, uh, Isaiah may be thinking maybe this is going to come within Hezekiah's reign. Maybe this is going to come within Jotham's reign. I don't know where he is chronologically in all of this. It's, it's before, uh, it's got to be during the latter days of uh, Isaiah's reign, if my view is right. So um, he's hoping maybe with uh, Isaiah and Jotham, maybe things will work all, out all right, but Jotham <coughs> apostatizes in the latter part of his reign. And so 
Is it something like Paul not knowing that the church system that it is going to be the 2,000 years of grace? Mm-hmm. He didn't know that. No, apparently not. Uh, we don't either. I don't know whether the coming of the Lord is uh, within my lifetime or not. It's soon. Uh, I, I read somebody kind of, uh, oh, it was you, Daryl. T- tell them what you, you and Dr. Ryrie used to go around about. You were telling me about that. <laughs> oh, on, on the, wasn't it you that were talking about the, the soon coming of the Lord with Dr. Ryrie? Okay. Yeah. Some somebody else. I asked you because I can't remember. Uh, somebody was saying that Dr. Ryrie kept asking, "the The coming of the Lord is," and and he wanted the responder to say "soon," and he would say um, "imminent." The, the coming of, and, and Ryrie would come back, the coming of the Lord is um, um, I've, inevitable, may have been a word that he used. And, and, and Ryrie said, say soon. He said, I don't want to say soon. 2,000 years isn't soon. <laughs> but having, having said that, I remind you that 1,000 years with the Lord is like a day. So it's just been two years, two days since Jesus. So, uh, so I, I mentioned to you last week. I think, uh, uh, Lord, how much is a million dollars to you? He says like a penny. He said, "What's a, what's 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 a thousand years like to you?" He says, "Like a day, or um, a second, He said, "He said, Lord, can I have a million a, a, a penny?" He said, "In a second." <laughs> so, so. Uh, I, I believe in the imminence of the return of the Lord, but that doesn't mean I can put any kind of time schedule on it. And, and Paul's in the same boat, and so is Isaiah. So Isaiah here is giving these messages, probably hoping for restoration of his people. Uh, as I go on, though, verse, uh, down through verse 26... Uh, God's going to restore them. So we looked at how God's going to go about restoring them in Hosea. This is that Hosea was even to the northern kingdom. This is to Jerusalem. And if he's going to do that for the northern kingdom, what will he do for the city which is the apple of his eye? What will he do for the city which is the seat where he has caused his name to dwell? Are you with me here? To this day, our hearts lie in some measure in Jerusalem. So he says, verse 27, Zion will be redeemed with justice and her repentant ones with righteousness. The, the redeeming here, you, what, what is the imagery behind redeeming? Do you know? Buying back. Buying back of? Uh, paying a debt for someone else. Yeah, potentially a debt or maybe a slave. So uh, when you buy, you give some exchange rate for that person. The exchange rate for the restoration of Jerusalem is righteousness and justice. Are you with me here? So this is what God is paying. He's going to give it to them. They've never been able to produce it themselves. Neither have we. Um, Righteousness and justice in the context of behavior 
Okay. Turn to Isaiah 46. Okay. And I'll show you. There's a lot of this, what I'm about to show you is is pretty common in the Old Testament. We when we think of righteousness, we think of one thing, and that's obedience. Um, but righteousness is is used that way, but not not everywhere, and in, in probably probably half its usage. It doesn't mean that. Um, if God is righteous, is God righteous? Yes. What's he obedient to? He can't be. He's not obedient. Is he disobedient? No. no. <laughs> it's just not, it's not possible for him to be obedient. There's no will higher than his to which he must submit. So God is not obedient, but he's righteous. Are you with me? Uh, uh, one, one theology book um, defined the righteousness of God as his characteristic complete loyalty to himself and his covenant. God always acts loyally to himself, that is to say, he acts completely consistent with his own character and with his word and plan. He works completely consistently. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, in Isaiah 46, um, the chapter begins with um, <laughs> a satire on, on idolatry in Babylon. Uh, and then a call in verses 3 and 4, it turns to apply that to Israel. What, what, what do you think I am? This has been the question since Isaiah 40, verse 12. Uh, who do you think I am? What do you think I am? Your, your views of me are entirely too low, which in itself is idolatry. Uh, so I need you must come to understand. You have not been carrying me like the, the Babylonians carry their gods. I have been carrying you. And then there is there is a um, a call to uh, uh, to um, uh, a final testimony, either from the nations or from Israel, about who is God. And finally, Isaiah. I'm sorry, I'm looking at the wrong chapter. Uh, that was 45, 46. Remember this, verse 8, and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established, I will accomplish my good pleasure, calling a bird of prey from the east. He's, he's already introduced in 44 and 45 Cyrus, king of Persia. I'm going to do this. And it's shocking to Israel. In fact, in Isaiah 45, he calls Cyrus a Messiah. You won't have that word in your text. It's anointed. But it's the same idea. And it's, in fact, the Hebrew word. But now look at verse 12. And look just at verse 12. Listen to me, you stubborn-minded who are far off from righteousness. Behold, I bring my righteousness near. It is not far off. Now, what's coming? Stop reading and look at me. What's coming? He's talking to people who are stubborn-hearted, far off from righteousness, and God's going to bring his righteousness near. It's not far off. What's coming? Captivity. Captivity? Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> not in the... Yes. <laughs> so the great squirrel. <laughs> uh, look, look now at the text. Behold, I bring my righteousness near, it is not far off, and my salvation shall not delay. I will, um, 
grant salvation in Zion and my glory in Israel. Why? Because of Psalm 23, a verse that you know very well. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So there's a fine old song. Um, um, do you know the name Hale, names Hale and Wilder? Yes. Yeah, there were a couple of uh, um, operatic singers who were Christians and, and doubled up on some marvelous recordings. Um, uh, but they sang a song derived from Psalm 23. Uh, he leads me in paths of true righteousness for his namesake. The implication of the wording in the song is that um, I'm going to be obedient. But is Psalm 23 about what I do for God or is it what he does for me? Then when he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake, what's in view? A shepherd that leads his sheep on paths where they have to get lost is a terrible shepherd. The point of the psalm is not that I'm going to do something nice for Jesus because he's done something nice for me. The point of the psalm is the shepherd is my keeper. He does not lose his sheep. If he does, his reputation is ruined. And indeed, in this section of Isaiah 46 that we're reading right now, in this section of Isaiah, he's in another covenant lawsuit. Not really a covenant lawsuit, but it's in a lawsuit against the nations. Who has the right to be called God? And he calls all the nations. Go back to 41 and look at this sometime, not right now. Um, in 41, he calls the nations. Come forth. Bring your testimony. Bring your gods. Tell us. Show us something. Uh, tell us something about the future. Tell us something about the past. Tell us anything. But they're silent because they have nothing to say. And the point is not that the gods never did anything, so they had no plan. What they did, they were fickle. All the gods in polytheism are fickle. They're not trustworthy. Uh, they can get so mad at you. In fact, uh, uh, Virgil, in the opening lines of his Aeneid, um, is, is such wrath fitting for gods? Yeah. And the answer, that surely, that we must read Yes, no, there's something wrong with the gods. Juno hates Aeneas, and she is trying to destroy him at every step to thwart the will of her husband Zeus, who has sent Aeneas to, to found the precursors of Rome in Italy. Am I making sense to you? And the standard epithet for Aeneas all the way through is pius Aeneas, um, pious Aeneas. Are you, are you with me here? The best of men are, are, are better than all the gods. Zeus's will can be thwarted by his wife. Uh, Juno is so full of hatred, she, she is Siwayu known as savage Juno. So he, he's basically saying you can't trust these gods. You can't trust them. All right, but you can trust me. Yes. You're not doing it. And the reason you can trust me is that I'm, I act in righteousness. I bring my righteousness near. That righteousness, let's go back to Isaiah 1 now. That righteousness first means in Isaiah 1, 24 to 26, or 27, 24 to 27, it first means deliverance for um, the group of people who are named 
Verse 25, I will also turn my hand against you and, and smelt away your dross. He's talking here about Jerusalem. Uh, as with lie, and will remove all your alloy. Then I will restore your judges as at the first, and your counselors as at the beginning, that you will be called, the. after that you will be called the city of righteousness, a faithful city. Zion will be redeemed with justice, and her repentant ones with righteousness. So, so observe that this is not for sinless people, of course, we know that. It's for repentant people. Um, what was that verse that just flew through my mind? Oh, uh, uh, is Exodus um, 32, where God appears to Moses and declares his glory. Do you remember it? The Lord, the Lord God, Hanun, I can Chesed gracious and compassionate. Um, long-suffering and full of, of um, loyal love and, and faithfulness, who um, uh, will not let the wicked go unpunished, but he shows compassions to thousands of those who fear him. Are you with me here? But the thousands of those who get compassion are sinners too. Are you with me here? So God's intent, folks, finally with Israel, as far as I understand this passage, his intent finally with Israel is to move in to a, an ungodly, unrepentant place and people and so work in their lives that he gives them righteousness, he gives them justice. But to do that, verses 28 27 to 32, um, transgressors and sinners will be crushed together. How, how does he know the difference? Well, the saved ones have faith and the unsaved ones don't. Not in this passage. You're right biblically in, in, general, in terms of the general message, but in this passage that's not even mentioned. Am I right? Okay. So if that's the case, how does he know the difference? When, when, no, he's talking about Israel. So, so, uh, what did what did Pastor say this morning that Charles Spurgeon said about John, Jonah two ten? It was a piece of good theology that he learned in a strange college. I can't remember the other quotation. I, I've known the the Spurgeon quotation for years, but I've not I've not heard the other one that he gave. Uh, what is that piece of, of good theology that, that he learned in a strange college? Jonah 2.10. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his to give. And he gives it as he wills. So it, I'm trying to put the Jews in, in this history. Their history is... Up and down, up and down. It was slaves, um, Egypt coming out, going through the wilderness, all this kind of stuff. Do they understand that that was all God doing, that they're good? Or are they looking at God saying, we can't trust you either? Well, they're looking at God thinking, um, we're doing our best, why aren't you doing better? Um, Sometimes there's a movie 
Uh, Robbie Benson starred in it. It's called, it, as a teenager, um, it's called The Chosen. Uh, it's, a, it's a movie version of a, of a novel by Chaim Potok, uh, P-O-T-O-K. Um, read the novel or watch the movie, either one. But at, at, in this, it, it's actually set in New York City uh, toward the end of World War II. And uh, at one point, uh, Robbie Benson is the son of an Orthodox rabbi, and his best friend is Reuven, who's the son of a, of a conservative Jewish uh, Torah expositor. Good Lord, not even conservative. Well, no, he's conservative. He's conservative. He's not reformed because uh, they keep Sabbath and they, you know. Uh, but the point is that uh, they've gone to a movie, and Robbie's not supposed to go to the movies because that's images, right? But but it's a it's all a lie, he says. But they're there, and they're, the the newsreel comes on, and the first new newsreel about the uh, the uh, deaths of the Jews in the death camps was 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 on. And um, his father subsequently uh, is praying about it, and he's talking to his the men of his of his congregation about it, and it's just painful to watch. Um, the uh, he says, among other things, he says, uh, "This man uh, fell off the ship." How how appropriate today to talk about it. this man fell off the ship, and he said, "Help, save me!" And they threw him a lifesaver. What is the lifesaver? It is our Torah. Torah is what is our save is what will save us. The Torah is what will keep us. And then, um, though he slay me, yet will I will I trust him? Are you with me here? It's, it's almost hopeless. You need to see this. So, the chosen, the chosen. There's a sequel, a book, a sequel called The Promise, and it's really quite good, too. Um, uh, I, I wish my students at seminary would read The Chosen because it, it ta- and The Promise because it talks about rabbinic training, and they had to memorize whole tra- tractates of the, of the Talmud. And, um, my students think they're overworked. <laughs> uh, but, but, but the point I'm getting to is... is Israel, by and large, just like the rest of the human race, has no heart for God. So if I have no heart for God, how is it that somehow I begin to have heart for God? Except that the Holy Spirit moves into my life. John 16, 8 and 9. He, when he comes, will convict the world of sin, of righteousness and judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Of righteousness because the prince of this world is judged. Um, I'm sorry, because I have gone with the Father. So they have no more earthly testimony about the righteousness of God uh, uh, with Jesus ascended to the heaven. So, so the Spirit comes and gives the testimony to the righteousness of God. And then of judgment because of the prince of this world is judged. So the Holy Spirit begins to work in the heart of mankind before we even come to faith. Helping us to see things that are unseen. Before we even come to faith, uh, that's kind of hard for some of us. But it is. How else? How else? How else can you explain the transformation of a person whose basic 
point of view is to ignore God, treat him as irrelevant. And suddenly we begin to think, my whole future depends on this one person, a dead Jew in the first century. Um, so the transgressors and sinners will be trushed, uh, crushed together, and those who forsake the Lord will come to an end. Surely you will be ashamed of the oaks which you have desired, and you will be embarrassed at the gardens which you have chosen. For you will be like an oak whose, whose leaf fades away, or as a garden that has no water. Do you not see here the reversal of Psalm 1? Um, so what is this, verse 28 and 29, I'm sorry, 29 and 30, what is this being ashamed of the oaks? They put their hope in, in oak groves where Baal shows up. They put their hope in the high places where the gods and goddesses show up. And in that moment when the very thing they think they're getting from the service of Baal and Asherah and, Ash and Astarte and I can't even begin to think of all the names at this point. Uh, as, as they think they are serving these gods to get a response, namely good harvest. Uh, lots of cattle in their, in their uh, fields. At the moment that they think that's happening, that's all going to be taken away. And they will be abashed. They will be shocked. Broken in heart. Uh, ashamed of the groves. Because the very thing they hoped for, those gods can't provide. Because the Lord's going to stop them. And the effect then is you will be like an oak whose leaf fades away or is a garden that has no water. The strong man will become tender. That's T-I-N, not T-E-N-D-E-R. What's tender? Most of you know. Yeah, if you, it's, it's, it's fire starter. Um, in, the, uh, in the Hebrew lexicon it says toe, T-O-W, and I thought... I kind of know what that is, but I'm not going to use that. Tinder is what, yeah, it's, it's tinder. It's shavings. You, 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 if you're out camping and you want to start a fire, you get a piece of cedar wood maybe, and you shave it where you've got lots of, lots of uh, not flakes as such, but fiber uh, showing. Then you light it and you put it with the wood and it'll help get started. Or twigs, yeah. Yeah, twigs are harder to start if you if you do the shaving with especially cedar wood. It's got the oils in it that will burn. So, the strong man will become tender. The very thing you thought was going to give you protection when the when the foreign enemy attacks is going to be the beginning of your failure, the the beginning of your destruction. Uh, his work also a spark. Thus they shall both burn together, and there will be none to quench them. Turn now to Isaiah 66, and with this we'll end. I just point out, because I have a doctorate from Dallas Seminary, and I know great and wonderful things most people don't know, <laughs> that Isaiah 1 is the beginning of the book, and Isaiah 66 is the end. Amen. Uh, and so we can all bask in the uh, sheer marvel of <laughs> what I've just said. Uh, Verse 22, Isaiah 66, 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, um, so your offspring and your name will endure. And it shall be from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. 
mind you, what, what Paul says in Romans 1 is worked out in this passage is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So there's verse 22 and 23, there's salvation, yes? Look at 24. Then they will go out and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me, for their worm will not die, their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. What we saw in Isaiah 1 is, is now the final end of all humanity in Isaiah 66. And in between, we have 65, 64 chapters. Okay? So, so here is the message, folks. Peter says, he reminds us that the righteous are only scarcely saved. God might have passed over me so easily. Instead of sending his spirit to work in my life, in his efficacious grace, to produce in me a love for the things that nobody else loves. I might have been passed over so easily. It's only scarcely that the righteous are saved. How does he know the difference between the two? There is no difference. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. It is the glorious grace of God that any of us are saved. And in his glorious grace... He's not going to withhold that from Israel either. Let's close with prayer. Father, you are a magnificent God, and we hardly even recognize it. Your magnificence is such that our eyes are not ready, capable of understanding it, our minds. But, but one day you will bring us into your presence. And we will, as the song says, stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could save me, a sinner, condemned, unclean. So, Father, uh, impel our hearts to marvel at your greatness first, just within yourself, and then to marvel at the grace that we have received to be called not merely your slaves, not merely your servants, but your children. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.